analysis, and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Beautiful day shaping up here in Kamloops. Sunny blue skies and absolutely none of the warmth. It is cold out there. Uh, sounds like it's going to be cold for a while. Got a pretty good show to get us going this week. We're going to talk about uh, toxic wildfire smoke in a little bit. We'll also do a little bit on uh, cryptocurrency in a really bizarre situation uh, that has resulted in about $100 million, $180 million in assets going poof. Uh, and we'll also talk to a Kamloops guy, Dr. Timothy Kiefer, who's uh, currently down at UBC, a professor there who's won a rather prestigious prize. So we'll talk to them. But first, we're going to talk about enrollment issues in the Kamloops Thompson School District. Joining me in studio this morning, Rob Shaney. Assistant Superintendent of Elementary. Good morning, Rob. How are you? Good morning, Mr. Woodford. I'm fantastic. <laughs> Good. Now, the reason I got you in is because uh, my my little guy, we registered him for kindergarten, so we attended your uh, your little seminar setting the stage a little while ago and then went through the process. And all of the fellow parents we have in daycare are going through the same thing. So we're getting this thing like um, we're getting the stories about what's going on in the different schools. We wanted Henrik for Lloyd George. Uh, he's 23 on the waiting list there, so he got into the School of Arts, his second choice. But it seems to me last year we got, we got about every student into their school of choice. This year, it seems seems like the demand is really ramped up, which made me think, you know, in the context of the student population issues and spacing challenges the district is facing, to have you in and talk about what's going on. So what are you seeing at the kindergarten level? It sounds like there's a bit of a, a bulge there suddenly. Well, you are very insightful because you are correct. We have the largest waiting list that we've ever had for our schools of choice. And uh, I asked myself the question, why, why is that? Um, and I think there's a couple things at play. Uh, generally speaking, we have about 82% of our population choosing the neighborhood schools, and we have about 18% obviously choosing the schools of choice. Mm. And um, But this year with our schools of choice, we have a few less seats, and, um, and there's two reasons for that. One of the reasons is that uh, our Camus School of the Arts has uh, only 40 seats instead of 60. And although there was 60 last year, you know, I should, I guess, um, explain that uh, every other year it's been 40 seats for Camus School of the Arts. The reason we went up last year, 20, is they had a, uh, an extra uh, classroom available, and yeah. this year they don't. So they're down to 40. And our South Sahali French Immersion School, they dropped 15 spaces. So resulting in, you know, 35 uh, people that would have gotten in last year didn't get in this year. So that is one of the reasons. I think we see a, a larger waiting list and the second reason is the uh, the problem that uh, we're seeing across the district and over the past few years and that's enrollment increased um, our demographic indicators suggest to us that our kindergarten enrollment next year should be up you know close to 100 students and if that is the case you know we can expect then that 18 percent of them would uh, would have chosen the school of choice which right. would have added to the wait list so yeah those are how i'm explaining why it is an increase issue yeah um you've got some numbers in front of you but uh, any idea as you look at them we can extrapolate for kindergarten this year we are we seeing more than you expected roughly or what do you kind of crystal ball question but in terms of enrollment in kindergarten yeah generally? yeah in general and schools of choice like what can you kind of d d derive from the numbers you got there from the numbers i have um i mean if we could have uh, housed everybody we would have had about 300 people choosing uh, um schools of choice this wow. year 
and uh, we had 197 spots. We have 97 families who are on a wait list uh, or two, depending um, on how many schools they, they chose. And uh, extrapolating for the uh, kindergarten enrollment uh, generally, which begins today, incidentally, mm -hmm. yes, um, we, uh, we expect uh, to be up over about 1,150, somewhere in there. We will project a little bit lower just so that we make sure we can uh, fund all the people that we staff uh, come springtime, but we... Our Berrigar projections are usually pretty accurate, so okay. that, that'll be about 100 more than last year. Is Generally, I mean, I know that over the last few years there's been a bunch of students that have showed up in September or something. You're like, whoa, where did these ones come from? Which is why you encourage uh, the early enrollment. Any sense of, okay, we've got our projections. This is where we are right now. We're beginning regular uh, kindergarten elementary school enrollment. Um, and then, you know, what happens in September? I mean, if, if you have another 100 kids show up that are over and above, is that a huge problem? How does that shake out? If we have another 100 over and above the 1,150, yeah, it'll be a challenge, uh, <laughs> for sure, because our schools I are... I can sense your blood pressure <laughs> rising from here. <laughs> so, yeah, you, uh, I'll probably have a nightmare, but, um, but you know what, our, our facilities uh, director, Mr. Art McDonald, has, uh, has said this to me over and over again. Um, if you're going to have a problem, you know, enrollment growth is the better of the two problems. So, yes. Uh, because with more students brings more revenue, and uh, and if you have some money, you can usually find ways to fix the problem. Yeah, and it's interesting for me because uh, this is my second tour of duty with Radio NL. When I was first here back in sort of the uh, 2009 to 2011 period, you guys were going through enrollment decline. So the, the big thing was you were going through in some really ugly meetings and some awful stress and closing schools. So I think you're right. It's a better position to be in but that said it's still a problem um how are we doing on the elementary school level for space overall i mean how jammed are we out there in your mind well there we are jammed in in elementary schools generally speaking um one of the hopes that we have is through the consultation process um we might be able to open west side elementary this year if we open uh, and, and by this year i mean september 2019 so if we are able to open west side elementary um that will in essence free up some portables that are generally or, or at david thompson currently so if there was a pinch and we had a, a large spike in enrollment we would have some portable classrooms that we'd be able to uh, relocate to support um, looking at the schools of choice demand, and we talk a lot about spacing overall and very general issues, but as you look at these numbers, does it begin a discussion or prompt a question about uh, do we need to add a school of choice to the district? Do we need to, you know, grow the French immersion program, for example, or the art program or the science and tech program? Do you, do you look at it that way or are they, or is it just sort of finite? Um, at this point, it's finite because... Um Generally speaking, we don't have a lot of space sure. uh, to to open a brand new school of choice. Um, if you look at um, French immersion specifically, we have 30, 37 student uh, students on the wait list. So mm. that means, um, um, what do we have here? We have Lloyd George, fifty-seven, ninety-seven students got in. So so. We are we're, we're close. We're, we're over. Uh, I mean, we certainly are oversubscribed for the spaces, but but it's not completely out of whack um, uh, with regards to uh, with regards to the need in in the community. I think if we had some spare building space, it is certainly a discussion uh, we would want to enter into in the future. 
French immersion is a little bit tricky just because there's an HR issue that goes along with French immersion. That is finding the right teachers. number of teachers. Right. And, uh, you know, and there's a many days in HR where they, uh, they are worried if... Uh, if uh, someone is fortunate enough to be able to have a baby, um, suddenly HR gets nervous in terms of will we be able to replace that teacher right. and, uh, yeah. and and find a find a replacement. So there's there's two sides to uh, to it. There's there's community need, but there's also the capacity for the district too. Um, for any parents who are listening uh, who happen to have kids on the waiting list, how does that generally work? I mean, uh, as I mentioned, my kids on on one of those waiting lists, so maybe maybe a little bit of personal curiosity here as well. But uh, if they got a kid on a waiting list, what what are they looking at over the next year or two? So um, if you are on a waiting list in French Immersion, we only have an early immersion program. So the enrollment window for French Immersion in Kamloops is kindergarten and grade one. Um, if you're on a waiting list, you're on that waiting list all of this year and all of next year. So if a spot comes open, uh, the principals will work their way down and, and phone families. Um, if you are on a waiting list for KSA or the uh, or the science school or Montessori, um, you're on that waiting list uh, until they until in, in, such time that they lose interest and right. don't want to be in anymore. But with French immersion, there's still the, the thing too about you know once the program advances, there's a certain point I believe just after grade one where the students progress to a point that they just can't bring in a new face, someone who doesn't know, right? So there's a there's a window there for for waitlist people to get in there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. For, for French immersion, it's by grade one, and if you're not in grade one, then then there's no ability to get in after grade one. Yeah. How many spots generally come open? Um, you know what they do come open. I would say. Over the years, because I used to be principal of both, both South Sahali and Lloyd George, yeah. and um, over the years, you would expect you know five five spots a year to to, to come open. So it's um, and a lot of people who accept in the call that they would have received last week in, in, in the moment. It's amazing what happens over the summer. You know, their their little ones meet friends, and their friends right. go to the neighborhood school, and uh, or the, the you know the parents get a transfer to a new city. There's a certain number that also don't show up in September as well. So yeah. Um, a final question to you, Rob. I mean, on the overall issue of uh, of this school population sort of crunch we have, uh, are you seeing the pressure mainly in sort of the South Kamloops, South Shore? Is that the real hot spot for you as people you know are moving into the area? Is, is, is that reflective in the elementary schools in those areas or no? The South Shore is definitely the hottest of the hot spots, but they're all warm. And our facilities plan is uh, beginning, actually, believe it or not, in Westside um, this year to relieve the hot spot. That is the enrollment pressures. Uh, in, in in the west side of uh, of the city, but um, we also we have hot spots up around Juniper Ridge. We have hot spots uh, uh, downtown and uh, <laughs> up in the southwest as well. So um, we do have a plan in terms of how we want to address the enrollment spaces, and our fingers are always crossed that uh, hopefully we'll get some infrastructure. Uh, announcements yeah to oh, for sure uh there'll be a conversation around ralph bell you think or no um that will be a, a conversation we are going to enter into in the fall certainly in our uh in our facilities review um juniper ridge uh has capacity for about one more classroom and after that um we uh we will uh, begin looking at whether or not we need to uh to uh, have a conversation about supporting that school in terms of space so we're looking very 
carefully and closely at uh, the kindergarten enrollment this week because we're expecting uh, and can, can handle 60 kindergarten students there but if we get up over 60 um, what that means is we're going to have to start adding portables which means we need to start looking at uh, options to support the school in terms of space. Well the challenges abound but as you say a good problem to have problem. Uh, and a lot of interest in uh, schools of choice here in Kamloops. Rob thanks for taking some time this morning appreciate it. Thank you Mr. Woodford. And uh, I'll pass the money off to bump my kid down the list here. No I'm joking I'm joking. Uh, we'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show on the other side. We'll talk about toxic wildfire smoke and interesting development. More on Radio NL after this. Local news now. Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Uh, as you know, for the last two consecutive wildfire seasons, Kamloops has sat in a pea soup of wildfire smoke. Uh, for one season, a good chunk, about three, four weeks. The next season, about two or three weeks. And uh, none of those things were pleasant. So it caught my ear last week when we uh, had some new revelations or some new uh, information about what exactly is in that smoke. Joining me to talk about that is a professor in Department of Renewable Resources at the University of Alberta, Mike Flanagan. Good morning, Mike. How are you? Good morning, Shane. I'm fine. You? Good. Thanks for joining me. Uh, so, um, as I mentioned, uh, for us here in Kamloops, I mean, we sat in wildfire smoke now for two consecutive summers. Not a very pleasant experience, air quality going into the crapper. Uh, but I was always curious, you know, we always ask questions from some certain experts of, you know, what does this mean? Is it bad for our health? And you got, well, you know, over the long term, if you did it year after year, sure, it'd be bad for you. But this is this is temporary, not a big deal. But but maybe not so much. What have we learned about wildfire smoke that's so concerning? Well, I spend most of my time, I'm, I'm a fire guy, okay? And, you know, what makes up the smoke that we get from wildfires is determined by how much area is burned, and B.C. had record-breaking amounts of area burned in 2017, only to be broken by 2018 again. So lots of area burned, and how much uh, fuel burned, um, and a lot of fuel burned in the last two seasons in British Columbia. So that contributes to how much smoke is in the atmosphere, and then the winds can blow it, and the winds can take it many miles uh, to Alberta, and then to eastern Canada, and to Europe, and Asia, and then back around. It can circle the globe. So, you know, this smoke is uh, making fire, like before, fire was kind of like a rural problem, and, and places like Vancouver didn't care about, but then they got smoked out last year, so now they, they care about it, and it's becoming a bigger issue. So, uh, you know, it is true that, you know, prolonged exposure is really bad. In, in Southeast Asia, where they have peat fires burning most of the year, there's, you know, 330,000 deaths every year attributed to wildland fire smoke, and most of those are in Southeast Asia. You know, they often say 80% of the damage is done from prolonged smoke and 20% are from episodes like we've seen the last two years in, in interior British Columbia. But if we continue to have bad fire seasons, well, then we can, we'll, you know, the risk will increase as we prolong the ex exposure. And it's definitely not healthy for you um, to do vigorous exercise when the air quality health index, which uh, is uh, on the Environment Canada website, and, uh, you know, it goes up to 10 or 10 plus. Right. Last, last year, you had many days that were 10, 10 plus because it was just, um, I'm not sure if you had the same situation where we had some of the really thick smoke in Edmonton. You'd wake up in the morning, it would start to get brighter, 
and that would get darker. Yeah. And I'm yeah. saying, is that a thunderstorm? No, it's smoke, and the streetlights come on. Yeah. In the middle of the day. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you're, you're breathing that stuff in, okay? And, you know, that... Well, here, here's a here's a bare bones question, Mike. I mean, um, do we know all we need to know about wildfire smoke? And if we don't, should we be concerned, even if it's a few weeks of the year, of living anywhere where we're inundated by this stuff? Is does this issue need more attention? Should we be more concerned about it? This issue does need more attention. It needs more research. Um, the more we find out, the more we find out it's bad for us. So, even if you're healthy individual those with respiratory issues or other compromised systems need to take you know appropriate action and visit your health care professional to find out exactly what those are stay indoors um, but even for people with you know healthy systems uh, avoid vigorous exercise when the air quality is bad it is not good for you um, now they often say stay indoors which is good but if you have prolonged exposure to wildland fire smoke Unless you have a good filtration system, the air quality in your house can be as bad as it is outdoors. So stay indoors is great as long as you have clean air indoors. Uh, wearing masks at particular times when it's those extreme days is not a bad thing. If you have the appropriate mask, and make sure it has a good fit. Because if it's not sealed properly, then the smoke just comes in. And so this air quality health index is based on particulate matter. Sometimes you hear PM. That's particulate matter, and they often say 2.5, which is 2.5 microns, which is really small, very, like, uh, much smaller than, you know, uh, spider web kind of thing. So it's, it's, if you exercise vigorously or do some activity that's vigorous, you breathe more deeply, and that carries these small particles, and they can get trapped in your lung, and that's not great. And as we find more about the constituents of smoke, they can be things like mercury and other elements that are really not good to be breathing in. So does this spur a discussion then on uh, on, on each sort of municipal level that, uh, you know, if you're an old folks home, maybe you need to make some changes, get some air filtration in there if you don't have it already. Do we need to look at having clean air centers in municipalities? I mean, is it serious enough that we need to get our heads wrapped around making moves like that or no? So, yes, I think we should... St- start having those discussions and you know the results may vary on each community how large they are and what kind of resources they have but definitely you know having an air filtration system if you're a newer home you're you probably are okay older homes you may have to buy units and some of the more reasonably priced units start around 200 bucks maybe a little bit higher um you know, we should be looking at those. A community clean air center and a cooling center combined because often, you know, these bad episodes are during the heat of the summer and often on extreme hot days because that's when fires often burn the worst, especially if it's windy. You know, that's definitely something that should be considered. Um, so, you know, we, we need, you know, emergency plans for all sites all types of threats, including wildfire. Kamloops may have one, um, but and that's a good place to start. Do they have one? And what do they say about cooling centers and clean air, air centers, um, handing out masks when, you know, air conditions are bad? Um, you know, yeah. these for air filtration systems in your home, uh, especially for those with compromised health systems. 
These well, are my, all good questions. Yeah, no, for sure. And it's, a, and it's a topic I think is really of interest to people here in the interior and, and all over the places. I know the wildfire smoke last season uh, was all the way over from not through the interior up north BC over to you guys in Alberta, Calgary, Edmonton. I mean, it was unbelievable. It just blanketed the west coast of the province of this country. So uh, it's uh, definitely a, a, an issue of concern. So thanks for taking a few minutes to talk about it this morning. Really appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure, and uh, who knows what 2019 will bring mm. on another bad fire season, but it will depend on the day-to-day weather during the fire season. Yeah, that too, and uh, maybe we can get you back on and uh, down the road here, and we'll talk more about this. Sure. Okay, that's Mike Flanagan. He's a professor in Department of Renewable Resources at the University of Alberta, talking about the toxic soup that is in wildfire smoke and making uh, the point that we need to learn a lot more about this and the health impacts of that wildfire smoke pertinent for the last two wildfire seasons here in B.C. Quick break on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we're going to talk about a bizarre situation involving cryptocurrency. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Digging deeper into the day's top stories. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. I'm sure we've all heard of Bitcoin by now, which is sort of the leading and probably most well-known edition of a cryptocurrency, sort of an online currency that we've talked about uh, off and on over the last couple of years. Well, we've had an interesting twist in this new phenomenon, and uh, talking about that, I'm joined by Chris Rowell, who is a postdoctoral research and teaching fellow at the University of BC's Souter School of Business. Good morning, Chris. How are you? Good morning, Shane. I'm, I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate you taking the time. So uh, we're talking about a guy named Gerald Cotton, who is the guy behind uh, a cryptocurrency company called Quadriga CX, apparently a Vancouver-based company. Uh, he'd amassed, I believe, somewhere in the neighborhood of $180 million in digital assets. He goes off to India for some reason and apparently uh, passes away due to complications linked to Crohn's disease, uh, which is not a pleasant thing. Uh, but uh, in the aftermath of his death, apparently we don't have any passwords to get access to the cryptocurrency he had amassed, which means uh, we have $180 million sitting out there somewhere with no way to get to it. So potentially it could just be be wiped out. Tell me a little bit about this. I mean, is there any way to recover this? Is this a huge, like what's going on here? Okay. So, well, this is kind of a, a feature of the technology, right? So uh, blockchain technology, things like Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin was the first example of, of this blockchain te- chain technology that we had. And um, the idea is that people are able to directly own and access their funds. And only they will be able to access their funds if they hold funds in their cryptographic wallet. So it's, everyone has an account on these blockchains that wants to hold these assets, and they can, um, they can access it through what's called a private key. So uh, th- that will allow them to kind of look inside their wallet and take money out, send it to other people. So then we had these um, cryptocurrency exchanges emerge, which would enable trading of these assets. So a way in if people wanted to buy, you know, with their credit card, using Canadian dollars to buy into Bitcoin um, or trade between different crypto, uh, cryptocurrencies, then these, um, these exchanges kind of provide a marketplace for that. But the marketplaces themselves, they have to have similar wallets. I mean, they're engaging with the blockchain just like anyone else, just on a larger scale, but they have some reserves to enable this kind of marketplace. So what's happened is um, they're basically acting as any, anyone else would, holding, these, um, holding a wallet on these blockchains as well. And what, what they're saying now is that... Uh, that the CEO, um, who unfortunately passed away, is, is the only one that uh, had the access to, yeah, had the private keys to these wallets where they were storing uh, most of their reserves. 
So what happens to all this money that, that, that is sitting there? I mean, is it just, or, or, or whoever holding these assets or has money tied up in his company, are they just screwed or, or what, what, what happens here? Um, if, if I tell the truth, I would say, yeah, they're pretty much screwed. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's, uh, it's, this is kind of, this is sort of a feature of the technology. It's not a bug of the, of the technology. It's, um, it's something that it, that it does that, uh, it, it kind of, it's kind of, you could look at it as the technology is so safe that it's, uh, it's impossible to hack, even if you wanted to get that money out. Um, I'm not sure if like, there's been a lot of stories since the start of Bitcoin where, you know, Bitcoin used to be worth almost nothing. Um, people would, you know, accrue thousands of Bitcoin in the early days. Perhaps a friend gave it to them or something like that. And then uh, over time, you know, after five years later, all of a sudden Bitcoin is worth thousands of dollars and people are rummaging through their old hard drives and, and trying to find their private keys to these wallets. Um, and, and a lot of money, a lot of Bitcoin, a lot of uh, these digital assets have been lost that way just by, by losing these private keys. So, um, yeah, unfortunately, unless they can somehow recover these private keys to these accounts, those funds are just going to be locked up. So does it speak to the need for some kind of regu- – I mean, great that they're so secure, that they're hacker-proof and, and that kind of – I mean, fantastic. Uh, but here's kind of a flip side to that problem. Uh, if you got one guy holding all the information and, and he is now gone um, and these people are just hung out to dry and you've got all this money sitting – I mean, like, if I had – if I had, you know, I don't, but if I had millions of dollars sitting in a safety deposit box down at the local bank and a bunch of other people had their precious jewels and all that kind of thing in the same safety deposit room, in different boxes and the bank manager passes away you know we don't all lose our money so does it speak to some kind of need for a backup a safety system a regulation of this cryptocurrency or no yeah i I think you're exactly right i think it's a good analogy um so like i said there's no problem with the tech well this is kind of a feature of the technology so i wouldn't say this is necessarily a technological problem but this is certainly an organizational problem they have not kind of done their due diligence they have not put these processes in place um, for any kind of contingencies, any kind of unexpected thing to happen. So, I mean, yeah, what kind of organization would do that just to have, you know, only one person accessing or able to access all of their assets virtually? Um, and then if anything happens to them, there's kind of no contingency plans in place. Um, I'm, I'm reminded of, like, I, I don't think this is actually a, a true story, but there's a myth that the secret recipe to Coca-Cola is only held by two executives at a time and they have, you know, some backup secret recipe in, in a safe somewhere or um, some kind of vault. <laughs> those two executives aren't allowed to travel together. You know, there's all these kinds of plans in place, you know, whether it's true or not. Um, but, but that will kind of create these safeguards in case, you know, something unexpected happens. Sure, yeah. Uh, but, uh, I mean, if, if this is an example of, of some kind of regulation that's needed, would if we, if we go down the regulation path with cryptocurrency, because the, the big shine on this, on this particular thing is that it's fairly unregulated and you can trade and amass and do what you want and, and for, for good or ill, um, there's not a lot of regulation over it. But if we start bringing in regulation, will it bring a lot of shine off cryptocurrency and make it less appealing or no? Um, I'm not really sure. So there's, there's, kind of, there's different ways of regulating this. So I would say I think the exchanges should be regulated in terms of how, um, or there's potential for these exchanges to be regulated in terms of how they actually manage these assets. If they're going to be storing large amounts of other people's money, they should be, there should be some kind of um, formal requirements for how they do that. But the, the reason that cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum, you know, these big, um, these big highly distributed cryptocurrencies aren't regulated is because we have, you know, uh, securities regulation for ventures that are for, for companies that are raising money, um, so some cryptocurrencies that are created by a specific company will be regulated by the Securities Commission. Um, but things like Bitcoin and Ether, you know, these are distributed networks 
with no central profit motive. So there's really no one to go after if um, you know if, if investors get. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's it's really difficult to actually um, go after an individual if, if something happens. Yeah, with these networks. But so they're kind of leaving them open and just saying, okay, it's kind of buyer beware this environment. Yeah, no kidding. Um, any, I mean, this is, a, I don't know if you have any idea or not, but I'll just ask you and you could say if you can't answer or not, but any idea whether there's something, you know, untoward here? Is this just a, a, an awful circumstance? This guy has passed away and, uh, you know, lesson learned. A bunch of people are losing their, it, there's no criminality here. This guy's not alive out there somewhere or anything like that, yeah? Um, I'm, I'm really hesitant to speculate on that. Yeah, I bet, okay. But I will say, I will say that... Uh, if anything was untoward, I mean, these, like I said, these exchanges just have accounts like anyone else on, on these blockchains. And these blockchains are public, so anyone can download the, a full copy of the ledger. They can identify these different accounts. There's just strings of code that identify these wallets mm. and where these cryptocurrencies have been held. And a lot of people have already identified some of the wallets that, that um, Quadriga was holding and using. So suppose that, um, you know, we were able to identify the wallets that they were actually putting these funds into. Then if those funds were ever moved, um, we would see it immediately, right? Like, mm. be able to see it on the, on the blockchain, so it would be quite transparent. So I would say that they would, you know, if, if this was a big ruse and if this was a big kind of plan to, to you know, siphon off money, um, I wouldn't do it on such a public system. <laughs> it's interesting there's that level of transparency, but but not the same and an equal level of access or, or security on the other side. It's funny dichotomy there. Yeah, exactly. I guess, the, I mean, the technology is designed for that, right? There's kind of big transparent system um, where you don't have to trust anybody and through that you can kind of trust the technology and, and trust that the, the system works because it's so transparent you can see all the people maintaining this network you can see everything that's kind of um, that, that shifts around you, you can't necessarily see which individuals or which companies those those accounts are linked to mm. but yeah it's, it's kind of it's an interesting kind of technology it's sort of um, a lot of these are just the basic design features of this technology that motivated in the first place <laughs> to be able to send money around right. um, that you can directly access and you don't necessarily have to trust uh, various institutions or, or different intermediaries for that. Yeah. Well, Chris, uh, thanks for taking a few minutes this morning and walking us through that. Sounds like a, a fascinating, but also, I assume for some, uh, especially people who have money locked up in this, an extremely frustrating situation. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope I hope there's some records for those people as well. Yeah. Thanks, we'll we'll have to see. Okay. Cheers, mate. Appreciate it. Uh, that's Chris Rowley. He's a postdoctoral research and teaching fellow at the University of BC Souter School of Business, uh, talking to us about uh, the death of uh, Quadriga CX founder, uh, who had about $180 million in digital assets and apparently took all of the keys or the codes to access those with him. Uh, not very good if you're holding money there. We'll take a quick break on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we'll talk to a cabinet guy, Timothy Kiefer, who is now a UBC professor and won a rather prestigious award. We'll talk about that in his work next. Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome. Thank you for tuning in. Hopefully a little bit of talk radio will warm me up on this chilly day. Uh, pleasure to be joined on the phone now by the professor of the Department of Cellular and Physiological Sciences at UBC, Timothy Kiefer. Good morning, Timothy. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. How are you? I'm excellent. I understand you're a Kamloops guy. Uh, that's right, I am. I'm proud to be a Kamloops guy. <laughs> uh, you got family here still, Tim, or no? No, we've all moved out west. Oh, well, that's sad to hear. Um, so, hey, man, you got, uh, first off, I guess, uh, congratulations on the UBC uh, Killiam Research Prize. Well done. Thank you very much. 
So tell me a little bit about that. What? Uh, how did how did the prize land in your lap? What what happened there? Uh, so the prize is given to faculty at UBC in recognition of research um, that's being done. And I have a group here at UBC that's been working several years on trying to develop a cure for diabetes. Um, and uh, the award was in recognition of the work we've done over the past past few years now. Oh, fantastic. Uh, that's a worthy uh, worthy cause for sure. Um, my understanding is you're, you're approaching it with sort of a gene therapy and stem cell angle. How, how would that interact or how does that provide a potential uh, treatment or cure? Sure. So first of all, diabetes is a really debilitating disease and it's due to insufficient production of insulin from the pancreas. So patients who have type 1 diabetes have to inject themselves with insulin. Um, every meal and measure their blood sugar levels several times a day um, and it's really hard by doing insulin injections to have good control of blood sugar. Um, as a result here in North America patients with diabetes can um, suffer many debilitating complications that impairs quality of life and actually reduces lifespan as well. So the approach we're taking is to try to engineer cells in the body to take over insulin production. Um, and one approach um, is now in clinical trials here in Vancouver, and that has to do with stem cells. Um, so stem cells are really exciting for a number of reasons, but primarily because you can convert them into any cell type in the body and grow unlimited supply of those cells. So we're able to take human stem cells, expand them in the lab, and convert them into the insulin-producing cells that are in short supply in the body of patients with diabetes. And after doing that, the concept is to take those uh, lab-grown cells and implant them into patients with diabetes in the hope that it can take over automatic insulin production so they don't have to inject themselves with insulin. Wow. Uh, if you're in the clinical research phase, uh, where does that sort of on the chart of, of uh, concept to reality, where does that put the whole thing? Well, it's a major milestone to get uh, approval to do studies in patients because that means uh, regulatory agencies have looked at it and at least deemed it to be safe. So we're doing what's called a phase one, two clinical trial in patients, and it's approved uh, both by the FDA and the Canadian equivalent, which is called Health Canada. Um, so it's being tested throughout North America. We're doing this in collaboration with a company in California called Biocyte that's actually producing the cells, the clinical grade cells and devices that the cells go in and then they're implanted under the skin. So it's a major milestone. This is, um, you know, kind of leading the way in terms of potential stem cell therapy. So we're really excited to see uh, the, the results from, from this trial. Yeah, I bet. Any idea when those will come down the line? Um, we're starting to get results now. It's it's still too early to know how this is going to work, but um, you, the, the next step is to increase the number of patients that are being uh, implanted with these cells and to do further optimization. And ultimately, you know, our, our hope is that a big pharmaceutical company um, will get on board and help to develop this into a product so it can be widely available for patients. But that's you know, further down the road once we establish that it's, it's safe and effective in patients.
how how easy is is sort of the application itself? I mean, to inject somebody with stem cells and go through that mm. uh, that process is that a fairly complicated thing? Is it something that can be done in the course of you know I'm going to go to the doctor and get this dealt with and then I'll meet you for lunch or what's what's the degree of difficulty here? Yeah, it's kind of the latter, surprisingly. So the difficulty has been figuring out how to make these cells in the lab and and then to actually do that in a scalable way in in what's called a GMP. Uh, manufacturing uh, procedure, and that's, you know, kudos to the company in California for figuring out how to do this. The actual procedure itself is is not that bad, and it actually stems from really nice work that was done in Edmonton at the University of Alberta, where they figured out how to um, isolate insulin-producing cells from an organ donor and implant them into patients, and that's, a, you know, the patients go in and leave the same day with this implant of cells from an organ donor, and it works remarkably well. There's patients who have not had to inject insulin for 10 years or more after this procedure. Um, so that kind of proved that it's a simple procedure. It's only about a teaspoon of cells that are infused, even though we call it a transplant. It's a really small number of cells, and it's life-changing. And so that kind of focused the field, um, including us, on trying to come up with a supply of cells, because obviously we don't want to rely on or- organ donors. And in this case, we're putting the cells in a little device that's just put under the skin. So the patient goes in, they have um, some small incisions made under the skin, and a few of these devices um, with, with the cells are inserted, and then they're stitched up and, and sent home. Fascinating. Uh, what, what, I mean, kind of rewinding things here, what led you down this particular path? What was it about diabetes and finding a cure that kind of drove you to say, hey, I want to tackle this, I want to do this? Uh, what was the motivation for you personally? Well, I did my PhD at the University of British Columbia, and during that time, um, my research led to a new class of drugs uh, that are used right now for type 2 diabetes. So as a young graduate student, that was really exciting. Um, to see that, you know, basic research in the lab can lead to advances that can help patients. Um, And after that, I spent time in Edmonton um, working with the group who developed that cell therapy um, procedure that I mentioned earlier, Um, and and just seeing patients who got this therapy and how life-changing it was for them um, really kind of flicked on a light, I guess, in my mind that a cell therapy could actually be cured of and um, that, that's going back to 2002, um, and since that time, I've really been focused on trying to develop this. And you know, finally, now we're seeing um, kind of the fruits of that labor, and, and many people all around the world are contributing for this. So it's kind of a universal effort to try to cure diabetes. It's it's quite an exciting time. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, was any have you had your immediate family touched by diabetes at all, or no? I've got relatives, not my immediate okay. family, but I certainly have relatives um, who who have diabetes. And um, over the years, I've worked with a lot of families. And, you know, it's particularly troubling to see parents with young kids that are, say, two or three years old that need to get continuous uh, injections and blood glucose measurements and parents getting up during the night uh, to check their blood sugar levels um, that, that certainly is very motivating to, to my group here at UBC to come up with something better. No kidding. Yeah, that's fantastic work. And I guess my last question to you, I mean, we're not there yet. Uh, you got to wait to the results of the clinical trials, et cetera. But um, if this should become um, a reality and feasible and we, and we charge ahead with it, hopefully we will, uh, on a cost level, will this be something that, that people will be able to access or no? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. It's um, um, cell-based therapy, I think, is going to be the medicine of the future. We're really moving towards uh, the vision of being able to prevent disease and for those that have it to actually be able to cure it. And so now there's a lot of um, thinking going on in the field of traditional pharmaceuticals, which are, you know, pills that we take, you know, day after day um, and, and moving towards something that could be curative. Now, the cost of producing um, cells, which takes us, say, a month to manufacture in the lab, is orders of magnitude greater than traditional medicines that are pills. So it's going to take some thinking of how to reduce the cost of these, and there's some interesting cost models to say, well, healthcare will just pay maybe an annual uh, amount um, for every year that a patient has no symptoms, as opposed to, you know, the traditional pay up front. Um, but, you know, our focus is to come up with the cure, and we believe that, um, like the cost of anything, it, it will come down over time, and certainly we don't want to develop something that's not going to be accessible to people all over the world. There's 450 million people around the world that have diabetes, so um, certainly cost is, is on our mind because we want it to be uh, affordable to everybody around the world. Absolutely. And as a, as a guy, my own father has diabetes, so I'll be cheering you on. Uh, thanks for taking some time to discuss that fascinating topic uh, and, and some unbelievable work, and I really hope it comes to fruition. Thank you. My pleasure. Nice speaking to you as well. And congratulations again on the uh, Killian Prize. Well done. Thank you. Have a good day. You as well. That's uh, Timothy Kiefer. He is a professor of the Department of Cellular and Physiological Sciences at UBC, as you heard. Kamloops Kid uh, doing some, sounds like some just absolutely amazing thing on the diabetes front, uh, flirting with potentially a way to treat or cure diabetes. Uh, we'll have to watch with uh, interest how that proceeds. Uh, that's it for today's Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL, same time tomorrow. From CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Local news now.